it was funny. Like I'm to say, you're the agent of Mesut Özil, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or so, I'm sitting in a library in Düsseldorf in the law library there, and people are looking at me like, "What are you doing here? Yeah, you're stupid or what? Like you know, <laughs> your players playing this weekend against I don't know Bilbao, so you should be right now there, you know." And I said, mm, "No, I need to do my PhD. You know, like this is important now. Like this is my life, and I I love doing it. Like, and as much as I love working for him, but my passion is teaching." Welcome to the Football Studio, a show where I speak with influential people I look up to in the football industry. I'm Sebastian Alvarado. My goal with these conversations is to get to know the person behind the title. I want to understand how they think, how they got to where they are, and get their personal perspectives and insights on all things life, career, and football. My guest today is Dr. Erkut Sogut. He's a lawyer, teacher, agent, language student, and aspiring novel writer. He has three master's degrees and a PhD, and he's only 40 years old. Here he reflects on his journey from the immigrant neighborhoods of Hanover to the top of world football. We talk about the quest to become a Harvard professor, how teaching is the foundation to everything he does, how that led to him becoming Mesut Özil's agent. We also talk about racism, media bias, propaganda and pressure, Mesut's retirement from the national team, and that photo with Erdogan. Here's my conversation with Erkut Sogut. Dr. Erkut Sogut. <laughs> oh, good. You can just call me Erkut. That's fine. <laughs> Welcome to the football studio. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, man. Um, okay, so look, typically when I do these conversations, I would start with a few introductory questions, a little bit of chit-chatting. However, with you, I know that when you and I speak and we get going, we can go on for hours and hours. So let's just dive straight into it here. How did your journey start? Yeah, the journey started actually in Germany. So I'm a 1980 born. So I grew up in Hanover and I spent till I was 20 my life in Hanover. And then I moved out, actually. That was the time. So all the childhood went, I was in a neighborhood like similar like you. We were like in our house where we lived. There were like 12 families in this big building. And uh, I think there was one German old lady in the first floor. The rest was like we had uh, two Italian families, Greek family, Turkish family, a family from Yugoslavia. At that time, Yugoslavia. Now it's Croatia, Serbia and so on. So that, that, that was the house, literally. So the communication was, you can imagine, these immigrants couldn't talk German. So everyone was talking something. But we lived uh, in a nice way because different cultures that made it so interesting. And yeah. uh, because we were seeing our own culture and we were seeing other cultures, other kind of food, drinks and uh, different religions. So it was very interesting. And uh, for myself, growing up in Hanover, I always realized they were trying to actually make us is kind of a disadvantage being an immigrant, knowing more, uh, being different. But actually, for me, it was always an advantage to have something else to be like different, to be, you know, to be able to speak Turkish or to know the Muslim culture. And then you have, uh, you live in a German society, which is like a different culture. So you have actually two different cultures and you too, actually. And uh, I was always put in a, in a way that we have to kind of decide what we are. Are we a Turkish or German? Are we a Turkish German? Turkish with uh, German with Turkish immigration? I mean, they called us everything, like, and I never... I never accepted that concept that I have to decide. I'm both. I mean, that's very simple. Nothing tells me I can't be both at the same time. Why do we have to decide or why do we have to get a name for it? I never 
got that like I got like you know it's it's being it, it's a richness to have different cultures it's an advantage actually how do you describe that to somebody and I 100% agree with you but there's still a lot of people who don't understand really that concept almost like that concept of dual identity how do you describe that to somebody from the outside who has no concept of it yeah i mean for for someone from outside who's born in germany is german german pure german or or in england they don't obviously know that and they and they want to either put us into themselves you need to be one of them so you need to change somehow or you are not one of them and you stay like how you are so they don't they can't see it because they haven't experienced it so for them is simple or for them is not the same way to describe our feelings and to tell us what we are and what we are not because for them it's just okay they're immigrants kids so they're immigrants so and uh, from our side it's different you know we are born in germany i'm i'm more I'm more German than some Germans in the way I work, in the way I live, in the way I uh, write and read, you know, but the acceptance uh, is is not there. So you have no chance. Literally, to be German-German is impossible right? to be accepted. There is always this kind of, yeah, but you're from somewhere else, right? You know, or there's always this, uh, yeah, but, you know, it's not accepted. I mean, it's very difficult for people uh, in Europe, especially racism in Europe is unfortunately all over the place, like, you know, people talk about that, like, as it's not happening, it's not the racism with skinheads and Nazis running around. That's that you can see, you know, you can, you know, who you have in front of you. It's more the racism, institutional racism, where an immigrant kid has to apply for the same job 20 times, where a German German gets it after two times, where you have to go and rent a house. They don't take you because you're Muslim and another one is Christian is getting. That's institutional racism. Is it's, yeah. it's a part of the society in Europe. And it's everywhere, and uh, but it's also a crime kind of thing to talk about that. They don't want it, you know. They don't want us to talk about it. It's like, you know, again, even I'm say they, you know, like you understand. They put it in us, like them, they, them, and us, like we we're, we're separated, like we're not together. And but funny enough, now, now I'm in, in in England, and we are British. You know, you know, the Brits are always like a phenomenon for me in history as well. When I studied about them. They found a word above English. So mm. English are English, right? But there's British, right? So people feel themselves kind of comfortable under the word British. That doesn't make them English, but they still make them sign of a part of a community. We all Brits, we all British, we live together, we work together, we pay tax, so we're together. So in Germany, that doesn't exist. We are not Germans, right? We are not Germanias also. There is nothing, but the Brits... They are smart. They kind of find the right way to do it. Or I don't know, they put them into... So even a Pakistani in India, a, someone from Pakistan or from India or from North Africa or West Africa, it feels like they're British, right? It's more That's kind of accepted than in a country like a Germany, for example. There's more difficult to say, hey, I'm I'm German. And say, no, no, my friend, you're, you're not German. So, I mean, that's I can see because I live now seven years in England and I lived my nearly whole life in Germany like Priya. And... Uh, this is the difference. But yeah, I grew up in a family. My father was a worker, so he was working in a factory. That's why he came. My Actually, my grandfather was the first he came, but he didn't stay longer than two years, I think. He left. But my un- my father's uncle, he was the guy who actually brought his own kids and all the nephews. So so his uncle and the seven, eight boys were living in, a, in an apartment. Literally, everyone was going out for work, bringing money. Uncle was taking... 80% also of the money sending it back home and everyone was like living together. That was kind of the idea was work and go back 
make money and go back yeah. home. No one wanted to stay there. No one was having uh, even the idea, like slightest, to stay in Germany for longer than... And that was during the... Uh, 70s. When Germany also, I, th I think, put into law that family members could bring family over. Yeah, it started like in the 60s, because Germany and Turkey, interestingly, have a very big tie. It goes back to the Ottoman Empire, where the Germans and Turks were always uh, together in war, in the industry, like in the military stuff. So the German generals were helping the Turkish military to become like, you know, so it, it was very big tie always. That's why after the Second World War in Germany, a lot of things got destroyed. They need workforce. So they went to, uh, to Turkey and bring people from there. But all of our parents were non-educated people, you know, like all the immigrants, they came, they were, you know, like, let's say simple people, but they mostly went to maybe primary school. That's it, five years of education, but not more than that. Most of them, like let's say 90%. Some came, teachers, Turkish teachers, and so people working in the embassies. There was more like some journalists, some educated like that. But the majority came from the Anat from Anatolia or from north of Turkey, from the Black Sea area, so or from East Turkey. So they were really like farmers, right? And um, yeah, that was the reason they came over and they stayed. So some got married, then another one, then another one. And suddenly life started being and staying in Germany. Now, I talked yesterday to my parents. They're still in Germany. They stay six months in Germany, six months in Turkey. They're retired. And yeah, this is the life now for them. Yeah, father was a worker. Mama was a cleaner. So typical immigrant life. Uh, that's how we grew up. We come home. Uh, the father was coming from factory or was still there. Then mom was going cleaning to the factory. So it was like the cycle of life, like both parents working hard to provide a life, not just for themselves and us, like also for the families back in Turkey. So my father was looking after three families. So people don't understand that concept. Like I said, like, it's very difficult. He has his own mom and dad and the brothers and sisters. He was looking literally after three families, like, and the money was not always a lot, right? So he had to share everything. That was the concept of family and sharing. So that's how we grew up, actually sharing a lot helping each other together. That's the concept of our family and the background where I'm from. Now you're able to reflect over it, right? And and value a lot of that and yeah. even applying that into the way you work and, and the way yeah. you do things today, which is uh, a fairly unique way of doing it in the industry that you operate in. But at the time, how did that shape that young Urquhart? I mean, for me, it was always, uh, I mean, my, my mom is probably my hero in my life, right? My mom is like the person who has most of the input in my life. Of course, my dad too. But my mom sacrificed her life, literally. She never went out in a restaurant and had food in Germany while I was kids. She, she doesn't know that. Like For them, life was just, the money wasn't there. It was like, just, it was like, she would never even spend money. She would spend the money on us, right? And my mom told me, was you have to share, right? You have to share with people who are in need. And my mom was, uh, she was, she had a tough childhood because she is, her left leg is disabled. So she's like limping, how do you call it, limping? So when she walks, you know, she's also had always this kind of um, embarrassed a little bit, you know, being in community because she limps. People see he has kind of a disability. And that was always something I always saw my mom. She, she still went going cleaning and, you know, working hard for us. My mom was always there for us. And for me, it was so natural to give her back and make it the proudest mom in the world. You know, when I was studying, I was studying day and night. I said, my mom, so I would, I just want to call and tell your son is a lawyer. Like I had always this dream, you know, I was giving my mom and making her proud was my biggest drive, like in life, like always sharing with mom, with family, with people in need. Fair enough. When I was at school, you can't imagine I was stuttering. 
I couldn't raise my hand, right? Till the 10th grade, I was like, I had a problem. I was stuttering. Like people was laughing at me. People was hitting my back to get the words out. I had no self-confidence, right? Because of that. And the only place I had confidence was football. When I was on the pitch, I wasn't stuttering. I was playing my football. I was the king. You know, I was a number 10. I need, the pitch was my home. School, I was more like, yes, I was doing well, but I couldn't do well enough because I couldn't speak. And I was never raised my hand. So, and I never went to therapy or so, right? And I started like fighting and I knew my mom was always praying for me. I've seen her like a couple of times when she was doing here five times prayer that she prayed for me. I heard that, that I will, you know, overcome this and become, you know, she was always sad about me. And this was again something I said, mom, don't worry, I'll, I'll fight for it, you know. So literally I fought it myself without seeing any doctor, nothing. Today I'm not stuttering. Since I'm like 18, I'm not doing it. 19, not doing it at all. So I overcome it myself working against it. And uh, yeah, and then in the 10th grade at school, the teacher sat in all of the class, Erkut. So she was giving to everyone in the class, we were 24, what should we do, you know, or what she would expect from us, what we can do. And she said to me, Erkut, the best thing for you to do is become a car repair guy. And in front of the whole class, and I'm stuttering, you know, I'm 16. <laughs> what, what will you say? She, she says, you, you can't make college high school. That's, that's not for you. Like, you can't make it, right? How did that make you feel? In the moment, of course, you're like, you know, you're like, your confidence and stuff, you're like, you know, shocked. But I'm, I'm a fighter. I was always a fighter. And these things make me stronger. And today I'm saying thank you that she said that to me. Maybe I wouldn't be today here. You know, these kind of things always shape me more and more. It always like put something onto me. And I said, no, she might think about it like that. But no, I can't do it. Like, And then I went to high school. So we were eight out of 24 who went to high school. We call it Abitur in Germany. Like, and uh, from these eight, three finished, and I was one of them, right? So, and from these three, like two just finished university. I'm on one of them, right? And another friend of mine, he's a, um, he's a teacher in Germany, Stefan. So we both actually made it from that class. And, and then I went to law school and there I had the problems because it was of grammar and stuff. I was always, like, always difficulties. But in the first semester, I was saying, because they were always announcing after the exam, after like six months mm -hmm. or whatever, the best results. And I was always like, <laughs> like not so good, you know, like I just passing or whatever. I said, my number will be number one. You just give me four years. So I'm a planner, you know, I said, I need years. I know that I'm back. Then these guys, their fathers were lawyers, judges, rich people. They were all to private, you know, they were good schools. And I was like in an immigrant school in the neighborhood, you know where 80% don't speak German. Like, I'm coming from that kind of high school, right? So I'm competing with these guys. Obviously, I realize they're better than me now, but I realize also I can be better than them in future because I knew they will at least party three times a week. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, these guys go partying. And I need to go and learn. I need to spend my weekends at the library when these guys go and partying. So I might be out three times in six years university, right? I was like working like a soldier, waking up at six you know, sitting on my desk at six o'clock. I was the first appearing at the library and the last was leaving the library. Like that was like kind of the nerd life. But I knew I had to do it to come there where I want to be, you know. So I needed to sacrifice. And, and I always had my mom. That was a driving thing. When I wake up in the morning so early and it was size, and I realized my mom was waking up at 3.30, 4 to go cleaning. So she had a job at the university actually cleaning. So she woke up so early. Before we guys woke up, she was already cleaning. So I said, when your mom can do that, like, how can't you wake up and, you know, wake up and learn and do, you know, and do more? At the time, what, what did that end goal look like? For me, the end goal is like, I want to be a professor. 
Yeah, so this is my dream. I want to be a professor at Harvard. This is my personal goal. Yeah, if that's a dream or not, I don't know. My dream is probably helping, helping as much as people I can in the world, reaching them with help, with food, with drink. So this is, of course, a dream if you can help millions of people. That's, that's a vision and dream. But personally, like work goal is, was never become an agent or lawyer. It was always become a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher or professor. I want because I love teaching others. I love giving others back. And I love making others better and seeing the progress. Because I taught myself in that time how to make it. And I know how others can overcome it with motivation, with hard work. And I always love it to have. And my team now working with me, all seven young agents, they went all through my education. They were here in London. I taught them. I taught them the system of being an agent or a lawyer. So they went through my system. Why do you want to teach at Harvard? I mean, I was there two years ago. I, I gave a guest lecture at Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. I was there and uh, I met Professor Carfania. He does sports law uh, at law school. I mean, for me, it was always, why Harvard? Because, you know, when you grew up in Germany and Harvard is like Harvard, you know, it's like there's Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, but Harvard is, it has this, you know, this name, this brand. And, and I always wanted to go there. So when I went the first time, to Boston, the first thing I did is I went to the hotel, put my stuff, and I went to the Harvard Yard, like just like the university. It was winter. It was before like New Year. And I just walked around and I've seen the statues. I see everything. I went into the library just to see it. And I said, wow. I said like, yeah, man, that's where you want to be one day. That's where you want to teach hopefully one day in that kind of a university. You might not become Harvard, but the goal is Harvard. You might become somewhere else, but the goal is Harvard, that kind of a university, to be a professor one day and invite my family when I teach that. That's really my goal in life and make others better again, you know, make an impact. And I love teaching. As you know, I teach all the time. So yeah, I can't, I can't give it up. Like I never wanted to be a lawyer. My father made me actually a lawyer. It was like, we're sitting at home. I finished college. Like I'm about to choose university. He asked me, what do you want to study? Have you decide? I say, yeah, I want to become a teacher. I said, no, 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 my son is not becoming a teacher, doctor or lawyer. <laughs> I said, that, dad, like, I want to, we had even guessed that my uncle was there with the family. I said, yeah, but I love teaching, you know, I love, no, 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 go back and think about it. So I literally went back and think, and then I said, that guy has a dream. My son is a lawyer, you know, <laughs> he has a dream. He, he, he wants it like so badly, you know, like, and I said, I need to make my father happy and I, and I need to be happy as well, you know. So I said, okay, I can study law. I go to law school and do my academic career. So I do my, I did three masters. I did a doctor in law. So I was a lawyer, but I was approaching academic career. My father was happy because finally he could say my son is a lawyer. And I was actually happier than, thanks God I did that because I can now teach at university. As a teacher, I would be at school and maybe that vision or that thing, what I couldn't see, my father might had seen it. So I'm, I'm really happy that he pushed me towards it. So in the end, it was a win-win. So <laughs> he's happy. He can say my son is a lawyer and I was happy I can teach at university. So yeah, that's about the life in Germany and uh, in Hanover. Yeah, that was a great time. Before we get into what you're doing today, just want to ask you, because you, you mentioned earlier that you've been up since five this morning. What do your morning routines typically look like? In the past, it was like six-ish in the morning. Then it became, it changed a little bit. But recently it's, it's again 5 a.m. So I love it to come up here in the morning where everyone sleeps. Like I just come up here. This is the top floor. I just sit here. I have, uh, I'm writing actually a lot and uh, I'm, I'm trying to write a novel, let's say trying it. And I, and I've done actually quite a lot now. 
So hopefully I will publish it this year. What kind of novel? It's a sport thriller. And uh, I do it every morning, like the first two hours. I come here, have my coffee, I sit down and uh, I have the chapters here, which I wrote already. It's all here. I have it, my PC here. And I just have the stories. I have it all here. The things here, all about the story I want to write on the left and right. You can, it's all here on, on the wall. So I need to select the world. I need to, the, yes, the, the hero. I need to create more with, with the villain. Yeah, he's from the Basque region in Spain. I need to work more about the Basque culture a little bit. So I, I do a lot. And then during the day, I do the research stuff. So, and it's literally about my job, right? It's being an agent, finding a gray area within being an agent. And which is like, you can, is it good or bad? Like, is it good to be a football coach and your brother is an agent and you do deals together? Is that, uh, is that this, that's the kind of moral, is it still okay? Yeah, it's legal, but what is it? Like, what's happening there? Like, and I creating characters. I love stories. I love storytelling anyways. So I started writing and then I put it more and more and it became stories. And uh, now the first one uh, hopefully will be nice. So I showed to some people already the couple of chapters. They loved it. So yeah, I'm working on it. It's, uh, it's something I like, but also, also in the morning hours, I create all my to-do lists. Yeah. So I sit down, I'm very like uh, old school with to-do list and uh, I need to write it down. People can do it on iPhone and I don't know if I'm not writing it down, I don't feel it like, you know, I need to write it down. Then I feel it's getting into my brain more by writing. I think the brain works more than I don't feel like this digital world. It doesn't give me what I need. I don't know. What, what does that process look like in, well, one, how, how did you decide to do it? And then how do you go from there to actually starting that writing process? I mean, first of all, because I experienced so much in this world of football agency, football lawyer, clubs, players, relationships, media. In the last 15 years, I've seen so much. And uh, I started telling these stories, what happens in a different way to people, you know, adding on and off. And uh, so it becomes like a passion to talk about it. And then, and then I started like, why don't, you, why don't I write down the stories and create like a fiction, like a nonfiction, a mixture of both, right? So I started reading about, so I was, uh, I was reading a lot about John Grisham when I was growing up, I'm a huge fan of John Grisham and his way of how he puts in legal things within the real world. And that's kind of uh, the guy who also shaped me in writing a little bit Dan Brown, but more like is it, I'm a John Grisham fan and uh, the way he tweaks the topics, the way he does research about law, puts it together with the story. And I said, this is something I love and this is something I can do with my world right? And find my own way. So I found uh, step by step my own way doing things. And then I, I learned the steps of how to write a novel. How did you do that? Oh, I did a lot. I bought books. I went to online tutorials. I mean, I mean, just here in front of me, there's some, I mean, everybody writes, you know, it's an interesting novel. Like there's another, this is structuring your novel, you know, like, you know, see, as an academic, <laughs> you really... <laughs> work your way through but this is just the uh, guidelines and stuff and but it's not everything but the most thing is like passion and uh, sitting there and consistency and uh, you need to come into that position that it becomes a habit if it's not a habit every day then you lose it what's something that you do to constantly keep evolving yourself learning improving it's always a task for myself I need to learn every day 15 minutes or 20 minutes Spanish, for example. I have the Duolingo app, for example, and I have to do it like compete with uh, Cristobal, you know, uh, he, the one you met, he, he's learning Portuguese, I'm learning Spanish. So 
Languages is always something I loved and I still love. I know Spanish a little bit, but is it enough to teach? No, right? I would make it to the level that I can have good conversation, that I can, you know, do work in Spanish and that I can also teach in Spanish one day. So this is something ongoing every day. I think consistency is important on that as well. If you, even if you do 15 minutes, you have to do it. Otherwise, you just stop and then you're out of routine. You're out of being in habit. I think this is something important. I do literally all the time. But I did also with other languages when I grew up in Germany. I, I learned a lot of Persian from my friends because it's very close to Turkish and Arabic. So languages was always something there. When I was living in India, I learned Hindi. Uh, I learned Hindi and Urdu in Miksha, like kind of in New Delhi. They were talking a mixture of Hindu and Urdu. So I learned a lot when I was in Mumbai teaching. I started like the lesson in in uh, in Hindi. They couldn't believe it, like, but I still had it. You know, I stayed there like a half a year, so I still have the language, like, and uh, and uh, this is something I love being learning languages, which always keeps me going on and becoming better in what I do. It's about reading um, other sports lawyers, what they do, what they write to to involve myself. Motivational things I do all the time. I need to motivate myself as well. As much as I motivate others, I have to motivate myself as well again and again. Do you need even more motivation? You seem quite motivated. Yes, I am because, but you still have to be motivated as well. Then I, you know, it's people think I don't have to motivate myself because I motivate others. But it's not like that. You have to motivate yourself as well. Like, you know, watching things, reading things. And, you know, wow, we have to make an impact. So I went to India in February to see the operations of the kids, which we did with Mesut Ozil, right? So I... I needed to be there. I needed to feel it, you know. And when you're there, you feel it. That motivates you even more. It's different from here, sending money over, sending the doctors, do the operations, come back. But to motivate yourself, you say, man, I'm just going to India now. I want to be there when the doctors are there and operate. I want to see it. I want to feel it. So when I come back, I work differently for that approach. So literally, that's the motivational part. So for, for myself, I need, to, I need to go to Harvard to just walk around there, to feel it, to motivate myself for the future so I know where I want to be. So I put it always on a picture. So when I was studying, I always wrote it at the door, what I want to be. When I was leaving the house, I was seeing it like I want to be a lawyer. So okay, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be an agent, you want to be this. So I always like to write it at the door when I was leaving house, it remembers me. So that's what motivational things, I go places, I feel it, I smell it, and that's what I want to be one day. And then I, that's motivate me. Why becoming an agent? It happened naturally. I never wanted to be. So it's interesting. So um, I need to go back to university time in Germany. I was a, the third year, I think it was. And then I said, look, I'm a student, but I loved sports because I played football, right? So I said, I want to work within sports. Even if I teach as a lecturer, I want to do sports law, sports management. Even if I'm a lawyer, I would be a sports lawyer, you know, like everything related to sport. So I needed to go into an agency or a sports lawyer, so something to learn. So I fought myself into a football agency, which was so difficult. Like I was out after five minutes. So I said, my friends, that agency, I'll go there and I will learn from that guy. He's one of the best, you know. Who was that? Is uh, Harun Aslan. He's, uh, he's an agent in uh, Germany. He represents Joachim Löw, right? He's one of the, at that time, like 10, 15 years ago, he had so many players at the time. I don't think he represents many players. He works a lot for clubs probably right now. But at the time, yeah, like a lot of playing in Turkey, Germany, was a quite successful agent. I mean, also Bayern Munich coach, Hansi Flick is his client now, right? So for example, he has still big clients like, right? 
And I was like, wow, so I need to learn from him. And then I went there and I knew the secretary and I told her, can you arrange me a meeting, right? With that agent, right? And she said, yeah, but you have to have a meeting for proper meeting. I can't just make a meeting, you know? Yeah, yeah, tell them, tell them about the player. I just need to meet him. So I went there with my half scarf, like, you know, like the meeting and I was out after five minutes, I swear. He's like, yeah, so, okay, what's the play? I said, I'm not here because of the play, I'm because of myself, right, you know? And I said, what do you mean? Like, and I said, yeah, actually, uh, I want to learn what you're doing. You know, I'm studying law and I think I can have an impact here. I can, you know, learn something. And he said, yeah, um, I don't take anyone. I have two secretaries and that's the whole system. That's still the system, you know, two secretaries, no more. And I said, yeah, but you know, I don't want any money. I was working as a waiter at that time while I was studying at university every Thursday, Friday, Saturday or, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I was working as a waiter. So I needed money literally, right, to survive. I also work at H&M, like you're a Swedish brand, right? So <laughs> I worked there like one year in the Osnabrück branch and a lot of other jobs and while I was a student, everything. And I said to him, look, I'm working as a waiter. I don't need your money. You know, I, I just come for free. I do whatever you want. He said, no, sorry, it's very confidential and this can't happen. I said, wow. And I said, like, and it's something that reminded me as well. You know, my mom and my dad taught me always. He said, if you want something from someone, add quality to them first. Don't ask for something. Add quality to someone, right? I said, and I was like, I don't know how I got the idea. Like, I didn't thought about when I went to the meeting, but at the door, I said to him, I will make something which will make you a better agent. You know, it's like, I was like, he was looking at me like, who the hell is this boy? You know, like, want to make me a better agent? And then he was like, what do you mean? Like, I said, you know, I'm studying law. You don't know the law side better than me about contracts and especially in different languages in English and in Spanish and the court decisions at CAS in Switzerland. I think I will do a magazine for you once a month, which will make you a better agent. And then he looked at me and said, yeah, 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 yeah. So he just wanted to get rid of me, right? I, I, I was out. My friend said, yeah, we told you, no chance, no chance. I said, wait a second, this game hasn't finished yet. So I went back to university studying and at the weekends I, I was starting making a magazine. Like this one, Harvard Business Review, but my was like, obviously, like uh, you go into a copy shop, press it together, like five topics, you know, and I was choosing always five topics and writing the topics in a language that the agent could understand. Like a court decision in Switzerland, he couldn't understand the way it's written with legal terms. Small writing in a nice way. He understand what happened for the contract of the player who went Niat Kaveji from Turkey to Real Sociedad, why the court decision was like that, what it means for following cases for him as an agent. So... When he brings players like that again, will the player will be seen as an EU member or because it's a Turkish, there was an association agreement between the EU and the Turkey that every Turkish employee is counted as a European employee. So they can't count him as a foreign. So he can. So I was like explaining him in a very basic way. Five topics. I took the train. It took like one and a half hour from Osnabrück, Hanover, uh, you know, ring the secretary's opening two pieces, go back. So I did that one month, two months. So I was spending every weekend at the library just doing the magazine. Three months, four months, six magazine. After seven magazine, my friends say, you're crazy. You're wasting your weekends at the library writing a magazine. You know, are you stupid? I said, no, no, this, this game hasn't finished. You know, I said, even if he doesn't really want me, I learned so much myself. First of all, I learned how to do magazine. Okay, that might not help me a lot in life, but I learned so much about the sports law side. Which, which is unbelievable. I had so much knowledge, you know, which I had to read it. I had to understand it first myself. And then I have to write it in a way a third person can understand. And that was so much time I put into it. 
And they said, even if he doesn't want it, like, you know, I will still do it. And then what happened after that? After seven months, I got a phone call from them. And they asked me to come over. He wants to talk to me. So I said, wow. So I went there and then they had a case uh, with another football federation, a legal case. And they asked me, I have this problem here. Can you deal with that? And then I looked at it, you know, I'm still a student, right? I said, look, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. But if you give me that case, you can be sure I give 200%. I don't know how much a lawyer will give to it and how much he will charge you per hour. But with me, you can be sure I give 200%. He looked at me like, and I was like, please, God, give it to me. You know, I just want this case, you know, nothing else. After one minute, he said, okay, take the case. So I took it, I went back to university. Three months, shut down. Just like lessons I had to go, the rest of the time was, was my case. Reading, you know, writing and everything. And then I finished it, I brought it back. They send it over and we waited another two months. And then they called me to come back. So the first day I entered his office to ask for an intern. And the time where the decision of the court decision was this was one year and I still haven't learned anything from him. One year, I just learned myself. And then he won the case. So it was good. The good thing, what I did. And then he said, thanks, that was great. And uh, he said, from now on, you can come whenever you want. You can learn whatever you want. Tell my secretaries how much do you want to charge per hour. And uh, yeah, under one condition. I'm like, so what's the condition, you know? <laughs> so what does this guy want from me? <laughs> I just I just want to learn. And he said, you know, when you were uh, leaving that office and saying you want to make me a better agent. Yeah, you, you, you're not stopping with the magazines. You were right. So that was the thing for the agent to see that I didn't give up. I was fighting for it. You know, I was doing work for free. I was doing his stuff. I was doing his magazines. And I think that was when he was realized, okay, he needs to make an exception. He never takes someone, mm. but that was the time when I went into it. So that was, I was entering into the football world, literally with that case, with that agency. And then I was in Turkey. So while I was doing my academic career, I was in my master's in Germany, Turkey. I was still doing for him smaller jobs. You said, Eric, go to this club as more like as a legal advisor, more like a lawyer, not Finnish lawyer, but I was doing these kind of things for him. And uh, fair enough, he offered me then being a partner. But uh, I haven't started with my PhD at the time. But we never came to an agreement. That was very interesting. We knew each other for four years or so then, four or five years. And he said, yeah, but you need to be in Turkey. Stay in Turkey. And I was like, ah, I need to see the world. I can't just stay in Turkey. I need to be America and Australia. I'm like a bird. I can't be in one place like for a certain time. And he said, yeah, you know, I think you should be here and do this. And I said, and the money was good, right? A certain amount of money as a student. I have 30,000 student loan. You know, I have to pay back for my parents' money. Oh, my God. So money-wise, it was the best thing what could happen to me, right? But it wasn't what I wanted in life, right? I was like, no, man, that's not what you want. Yeah, the money is good. It gives you comfort. And I will get into a comfort zone. And I might stay right. all my life in this comfort zone. And I said, I need, to, I need to go my own way. I might need to suffer. I may have problems, money problems, whatever. But I will learn it. Otherwise, I will never be my own boss or I will never work for myself. I will never be what I want to be. I'll be always working for someone else. I will be, I will live in someone else's life. No, I want to live my own life. I want to decide when I want to do what, you know, where I want to go, what I want to learn. So I said, I think I need to go my own life. And How did he react? The contact was gone. So he was, <laughs> I sent an email explaining everything, but <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't save it. So it was like, Gone, right? It was like shut down. And we haven't spoken then afterwards for five years or so. 
And I tell you, when we spoke again the first time, so in that time, I was like in the most struggling time of my life. I was like up and down. One day I was the king in Istanbul or in Germany. The second day I was looking for a place to hide. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, my emotions were going up and down. I was doing a deal. I couldn't, I, they, they didn't pay me. So I spent the money in my mind already. <laughs> you have to imagine I did like two deals with another agent in Turkey. Uh, it was to really Ankara. It was like two players from Germany, Turkish Germans. So I was like, wow, I was, I was supposed to get paid 50,000 euros or so, right? And twice. And I was in Ankara. I took back the bus going back to Istanbul and I was counting the money, right? In the bus, 10,000, I pay towards my student loan, 10,000, I give my parents, 10,000, I pay my rent upfront. The money was already gone when I arrived in Istanbul, but the money never arrived. They screwed me, you know, I was like this young lawyer agent who has to experience it, right? A very struggling time and but you know i was always positive that's the most important thing in life i say you know we all live once everyone has one life no one is no one lives forever and you need to make the best out of it so you can always start from scratch from zero there's nothing to lose and i said i need to try out thing i need to fall down i need to get up so that's actually what i did all the time and but something i never gave up was my education i was going on with my masters imagine i was teaching people english in Istanbul, uh, in Bebek at the Starbucks uh, cafe and making money by teaching English with my bad English at that time, you know, <laughs> just to survive, you know, <laughs> just to pay for the university fees in Turkey. Unbelievable. So I was always someone who did three, four things at the same time. I was doing education, doing my master's. I was working with another agent, helping him. I was teaching uh, separately. And at that time, when I was struggling so much, I said, wait a minute, no one is teaching agents. And that was the time when I needed money. I needed to make money to survive. And I said, no one is teaching football agents and they need to pass an exam. So no one is providing that kind of preparation for them. The football federations are not doing it. I said, I can do that. So I passed the exam at that time before in Germany. I was a registered basketball, football and hockey agent. Imagine I passed all these exams because out of interest, I did it. Like yeah. because I was working with an agent. Oh, let me go. How difficult. So I learned how to pass it. I learned what you need to learn. I remember the test. Now they take the FIFA exams away. But yeah, yeah, but it will come back. Yeah, I did it back here too, but just out of interest, I passed the exam. I think there were two guys out of like 50 who passed it. Yeah, yeah, same, same, same. And so I said, well, I can, I can do that. I can prepare people while I'm doing my master's and I will nearly start my doctor. So why don't I just uh, teach, teach these people who want to become an agent? And then... I found a student who was doing websites. I gave him 200 euros or so, like in four installments, you know, like as, as long as having some time between, you know, like in eight months, I pay you off. So I say, I need a website, you know, and I called it managerliksnavonok.com, which means agentsexam.com, footballagentsexam.com, like in Turkey, like no one had that website. So I put it on because no one had it. And, and whoever Googled managerliksnavon, agents exam, it's the only website is existing. All the Turkish German community found that page in Germany, in Holland, in Belgium, in Turkey. Suddenly, and then I went to a place in Istanbul. I rented a, for weekend seminar. So I did a Saturday, Sunday seminar. I wrote like a script, which was like around 100 pages with case studies. Uh, if a player A, you, I mean, you pass the exam, you know, uh, how much is the training compensation if the player played three years there, five years there, and he's 18, and then he's signing his first professional contract. You have to calculate. And so I did case studies so in certain uh, things, so I explained it. And then I did the seminar two days, 
And I didn't know how much to charge, you know. I said, wow, how much money should I get from these people? So I said, what the hell, 500 euro, you know, per, per weekend. It was so many years ago. And I said, well, was it just too much, too low? Some people told me, take two, three thousand per person, you know. You're a lawyer, you know, you do must. Some were saying, oh, that's too much. I said, come on, 500 euro. And then uh, it was like around 20 people came for the first one. All right. I said, wow, that's good money over the weekend, you know. So, wow. And then I realized wait a minute, you can teach and you can make so much money as well? So suddenly I realized how much actually is an education. When I Google check the American universities, they make billions. I said, wait a minute, there's so much money in education. You just don't need to be a lecturer at university for your whole life. You can be even make proper money with that. Like, you know, I was, that was the first time I realized like how much money actually is in education and how much people are willing to pay to educate themselves. It was unbelievable. So I became suddenly the only guy in Turkey, in the German-speaking community in Germany, in Holland, Belgium, England, wherever were Turkish people and wanted to become an agent, they came to my seminars. Or some of them asked me to send the stuff over. I said, okay, if you can't come physically, I send it to you over for 250 euros. So I was literally sitting then. There was a Turkish guy in Russia, in Moscow. He wanted the script, so I sell it. There was a Turkish guy in Switzerland. I sell it, so suddenly... I was making a lot of money and I was getting well known in the community and the Turkish Football Federation was recommending me for people who want to become an agent. I didn't know that because I was asking, how did you find me? Half of the people coming says, yeah, the Federation said there's a young lawyer in Istanbul, German-Turkish, who gives this exam. And that was the time when Mesut Özil's father called me. All right? I was an actually, I made the money. You know what I did with the first money I made? I booked tickets and went to Oxford to the law library. I stayed two, two weeks in London, right? And went every day by bus to Oxford and spent every day in the library. So I was already thinking about my PhD, which I will start soon, right? Finish the master. I, I would say, I want to do my doctor. So I was investing the money back in education mostly. So I says, okay, I need to go to London, flight tickets, hotel. I need to go every day to the library. I need to check. I need to do some research about sports law. And I need to feel again a library. I need to feel Oxford University. And that was again my motivation, right? At that time. So you weren't actually enrolled. You just wanted to go there to access the library in yes, the beginning. Yes, just to access the library. They said, oh, you need to be a student in Texas. No, no, no. I'm a student in Germany, but I do my master. Can I go? I really had to work hard to put myself into the library. They wasn't allowing me to go into the library. So actually, wherever I go in the world, a lot of places, I go to libraries. So people go and watch a sculpture. I go into the library. What's the favorite one in the world? Uh, so far, the favorite one, I think Oxford as a library. I mean, even Harvard as a name is big, but Oxford Library, it was like, it was history. Like, it was unbelievable. So you were saying you got a call from Mesut's father. That, that was the time when I was in Oxford in the library and I got a phone call and I left the library and it's a German number and I, said, I didn't know the number. So I took the phone and I said, yeah, um, that was first first a lady talking, the secretary or so, right? Turkish, yeah, hi, we, we've seen your website and you're teaching upcoming agents and would you imagine to come and teach in uh, Germany? We are like a sports agency. So yeah, why not? I can imagine that. And uh, and then suddenly a, a man took the phone. Yeah, um, here, Mustafa Özil, I'm the father of Mesut Özil and uh, I would like to talk with you about teaching all our employees. Mesut's brother, now he's my partner. We work together, right? And all the other people, like six people in the office, he said, can you come over a weekend here once a month and give lessons? So yeah, if you pay me everything, I come. My flight, hotel and stuff, why not? So we agreed for some. So then after six months doing that, 
It was a time when they said, oh, can you imagine actually moving back to Germany? And I was just finished my master's actually in Turkey and I was have to come to Germany anyways for my PhD at Osnabrück University, right? What year was this? 2010, 11. Nine, I became a lawyer, then two years, yeah. And then they said, yeah, can you imagine doing that? I said, mm, okay. Um, but, you know, I'm just starting my PhD at the university soon. So I can't work five times a week. And then I say, yes, but you become Mesut Özil's lawyer. Yes, I say, yes, but I, I need to become a doctor-in-law as well, you know? And then I said, it was like, uh, for them, it was probably strange to say, like, I just can work three times a week, right? As a lawyer, in, in, as, as an in-house lawyer. And then, uh, but finally, I went to Madrid, met Mesut in Madrid. So we have the talk. He wanted to meet me. He had a good feeling. He liked me. He says, okay, I like it. And then I said to him, look, I need to spend a lot of time in the library. I need to work on my PhDs in the evenings, at the weekends and stuff like that. I can't come a lot for games and stuff. He said, no, don't worry. That's fine. So that's how I started, actually. So when you first met Mesut, what were his main questions to you? I mean, he just wanted to know about myself, like who I am, what I'm doing, like personal stuff from where I come, what I do. He doesn't want to know technical stuff. I think he was just looking for someone to trust rather than someone who comes as a lawyer, you know, with thing and telling him I'm the best lawyer. He was just looking, I think, in, in that kind of clientele, people are looking for people to trust. You know, that's that's the level, I think. And uh, and they don't find much. And I think I just was natural as I can. And I was honest that I had to say, look, I have to learn from my PhD, you know, even if I'm your lawyer. So, you know, I mean, you have your life. I have my life. Right. There's nothing like, you know, you go on. I have to go on as well. So I'm not living your life in the end and you're not living my life. We have all our own lives, but I work for you. But they actually had a lot of fun with me, him and his colleagues. Oh, the nerd is there. He needs to go back to the library. <laughs> you know, like, oh, you're already here in the office. We thought you're in the library. It was always like they had always their fun with me. So it was a fun thing, actually, in the end. It was nice. And yeah, funny enough. And then. I probably worked like one year as a lawyer, not even one year. Then there was a split between the father and the son and uh, the mom and dad got divorced. There was a time when the family was falling apart a little bit and uh, and Mesut wanted to meet. Uh, I just called me to a hotel. He was with the German national team in Germany at that time. And he asked me like, Erkut, like, I want to, uh, we took a family decision and we want you from now on to take over. Like, and uh But he said, like, I want you to do with my brother. I had to explain him there. Look, I started my PhD. I was already in my doctor, right? And I said, this is a big commitment for me because you need to understand I do my doctor-in-law and I have a commitment to the university. I need to finish this. And at the same time, I, I need to be your agent, which I said is probably not the easiest thing to be with someone who plays at Real Madrid and wears the number 10, right? How did you feel when he asked you that? I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And I, was, I felt like amazed, like, you know, that he wanted me to do it. And I said to him, honestly, look, I haven't done it on that level. I'm not the most experienced guy who did like 100 transfers here and there. I'm not the guy they know at Real Madrid, you know, and the, the big clubs. Are you sure like that I'm the right guy? No, he's, he, he just very simply he just said, I need someone to trust. I don't need to someone who brings me a club. Like, I need someone who can trust, uh, who works with my brother together. And uh, that's what I'm looking for. That's it. As long as you work hard and trust and we can trust you. So then everything is fine. That's what we want. So that was actually what he wanted, what he looking for. I said, look, I have to build a lot of things from scratch. I need to go to clubs. I need to meet a lot of people. I need to learn myself. So 
on that level is probably different than what I've done for other agencies so far. So he understood. And, and I said on top, I need to spend a couple of days in the week in the library. <laughs> he was like, okay, okay, let's do it, you know. It was funny, like I'm the CEO, the agent of Mesut and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday or so, I'm sitting in a library in Dusseldorf in the law library there. And people are looking at me like, what are you doing here? Yeah, you're stupid or what? Like, you know, <laughs> your players playing this weekend against, I don't know, Bilbao. So you should be right now there, you know? And I said, mm, no, I need to do my PhD, you know? Like, this is important now. Like, this is my life. And I, I love doing it. Like, and as much as I love working for him, but my passion is teaching, right? No one can take away that from me. You can take everything from me, but not that my passion for education and teaching and, and developing myself. So therefore, I always they always had fun with me about that. But it was good. I mean, I did my thing and I helped Mesut as much as I can. Off, on the pitch, I probably don't have to help him much. But off the pitch, I try to do my best. Always try to get the best contracts. Always try to negotiate the best way. I learned how to, ne I learned how to negotiate. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an art. How do you negotiate? Oh, I mean, I, I can't tell you how I negotiate. <laughs> I mean, it's like... I mean, it's a, I, I always say every transfer is different. There's no two transfers I had so far, which is similar, like because the player is different, the circumstances, the money, everything, the media, the country, culture, religion. I mean, there's so many components coming together. And if you want to do it in the right way, in a good way, you need to put time and effort in it and create a strategy. What you want to approach, how you want to approach, how long you have time, you know, what options I have, creative You know, it's so many things like people think it's like transfer is done like this, you know. It's like, I mean, I work with lawyers and tax advisors all the, all the time together because I'm a German lawyer. If I do a deal in England, I have English tax advisors and English lawyers with me, which I trust and know for years for every contract just to double check, just to make it better, just to see what else can we do, you know. It's not like, it's not like hey, I'm, I'm the best agent, I do everything myself. It's bullshit, you know. You you're never the best. You can always try to be the best. You can always work hard to do good work, but you have to outsource and also work with people together who are better than you and who are more professionalized in certain areas. In tax law, I'm not a tax lawyer, so in contract law, every day there are some lawyers. That's their job. They wake up, they work on contracts, they go to sleep with contracts. That's not what I do. So therefore, I need to work with these people together to protect to protect my client, but also to protect myself. So my Client can't tell me, hey, why did you get this bad contract for me? So, right. And I say, look, I mean, I work with these lawyers. I work with this team. And I think we did a great job, like even if you like it or not. How did things change for you in your life when you become an agent of, of such a public persona? I mean, it's constantly 24-7 work, right? I mean, I'm a workaholic anyways, as you know, I motivate myself. But it became like that you need to be awake all the time, kind of. Yeah, your phone is like next to you all the time. Your clients might need something. Because uh, some people taught me like at that time when I was uh, looking after him and people were saying, hey, Erkut, you should have more players. Why don't you give another top five? And I said, my friend, this one player, you know how much work is it if you want to make it right? You know how many how many journalists I have per day? How many marketing guys? How many PR guys? How many charity work? How many work with the club? How many his own fashion brand? How many his esports team? How many... Uh, Is his business ventures I take care of? You know, that's, that's like looking after 25 average Premier League player. One player like him. So people don't realize it. People think like, yes, I can. I can have more players, but then I can't give the service. So what do you want? You want to get for your player the best contract? Or you just want to get five players and make them average deals? And when I work, what's changed is like, obviously you're like um, under pressure more. 
Yeah, you feel the pressure. You feel the media. You feel the pressure. You need to learn to deal with this. You bring it sometimes home. You can't rest. Yeah. So, and I realized when I lost some hair, like, you know, there's an round way. And then I went to the doctor and I said, what's that? Like, I lost you some hair, like, here on the side. It's like round, like. He said, it's stress, <laughs> you know. And I didn't realize that I was so under stress, right? So much under pressure. And uh, media, then the clubs, then all the contracts. I, I didn't realize that I was so stressed, actually. I needed help, like. And uh, I, I realized, actually, I need a life coach. Like, I said, like, even I need someone. I motivate others. I teach others. But I need also someone who can talk, who guides me. Right? So I talked just last time to someone in Switzerland. He said he knows someone in Switzerland. Echo, you should talk to him. Right? I said, people see this as a weakness. But I see it's like, hey, that's a professional. That's his job. Maybe I should talk to that guy. He might guide me. A, he might help me or see things I can't see because I'm all the time in it, you know, every day, in and out. Starting with Mesut, yeah, a lot of things change in my life, obviously. And, uh, but the thing is, I, I never said it's done, right? It needs to become better. Then it was a goal. How do I get him the best contract, right? I needed to make the best one. I didn't want to say no. It must be the best, best. People say he has the best contract. So that was a goal for months and months. I put all the time and effort with my team to create it. Yeah, until done, okay, now off the pitch work. What do we do? We need to be the best, the best. Esports team, we need to crest best esports team. So how can we do it? And, and a lot of other things, business ventures like the coffee shop we have in London together and a lot of other things we created. Like he probably has more than 10 businesses around football. Huge, like what he has. People don't know. When he retires, people will see like, wow, wait a minute. He employs hundreds of people and... Uh, it's a big businessman, actually. So people will realize it like, and he will talk about that hopefully when he retires one day, but not now. So you went from hustling Joggy Love's agent to get an internship with him, to declining his job offer, to teaching agents and doing other random jobs while pursuing your education, to becoming Mesut's agent. What was it like when you met him for the first time after all that? And when was it? In Brazil at the World Cup. Uh, 2014, Germany, Brazil. So I was representing Mesul and he was representing the coach and we were sitting next to each other in the stadium of like so many people. Tell me about that first conversation that you had with him again. You know, I was nervous. <laughs> Interestingly, I was nervous like I'm meeting my boss that I have so, I have so much respect. Not uh, still, right? And I, I respect him a lot. And I was kind of nervous that he will be ang angry with me because I did like, but he was proud of me. He said, I'm 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 proud of you. Like you did your own way, and it was good. It's good to meet you again. And since then, we are together again. Like we talk, and you know, trying to do things together, and it's nice. Uh, so, I did my own decision at the time well, to do it. You know, so and uh, it was good that I did it. What was it like to be at that game, having your player on the pitch, and Germany beating Brazil seven-one? I mean, it was unexpected, right? It was like no one is expecting it. It was, it, it was fear, you know, leaving the stadium, to be honest. It was like, it was like after 4-0, I mean, or 3-0, we didn't get up anymore. We're just sitting like 5-0. I was like this, 6. No, no, no reaction because we were surrounded by Brazilian fans, supporters, right? All, all over. We're just in the middle, like some German family members. And, and, and they were getting angry, you know, like some started crying, some was getting saying, angry and looking at us like, and I would say, wow, I will never leave the stadium. <laughs> something will happen when we leave. They will try to hit us or spit us. Something will happen, right? They're angry. They're crying. They're like in their hometown. 
like in Brazil and such a defeat, which happens one in hundred years, right? You wouldn't expect that. And and I was like, wow, what will what will happen? Literally, right? And there were a lot of like family members, wives, and you know, with the kids. And I was more concerned about literally after three, four nil. I was really concerned. The second half, I was just thinking about how will we leave the stadium. There was a couple of security guys, and I was like, okay, when we do this. I should take, Mesut's cousin was with me. And I said to Mesut, they were like, Boateng's kids were there, right? Jerome Boateng's two daughters. I said, yeah, you you should take one of her. If something happened, I take the other one. You know, the wife can't take them. Grab them like very close when we leave. We were making like scenarios. The second half, I, I couldn't I couldn't enjoy the game at all. It was like horrible for me. It was like, how will I leave this place? Like, it was like everyone was scared. Like, hey, to be honest, when we were leaving, they didn't do anything. Nothing. There was just like, there was, there was like saying, we want one thing from you guys. And I was like, wow, what do, they, what do you want? One thing, like one, only like one thing, like you have to beat Argentina. Because the shame that Argentina wins in their country, the World Cup, it was like probably 100 times bigger than they're losing against Germany. So that was the thing. And I think when Germany beat Argentina, it was settled a little bit. So that kind of give them a little bit relief. I think so, personally. That World Cup was, it was almost like a culmination point for German football. And if we tie it back to kind of where, where we started off this conversation as well, after winning that World Cup, you know, it was like Germany was celebrated in a way for its work with integration. There was several players with, with immigrant background on that team. And then going from, from 2014, where, you know, we were celebrating the, the diversity of the team, getting to 2018 is quite the opposite. Yeah. And, and some of the players, Mesut included, Jerome, another example of guys who became almost like the scapegoats. Yeah, I mean, it's it's normal. You have to always, the media especially, they look for uh, these kind of things, you know. And uh, who who can't you better attack than Mesut, you know. Like, it's a perfect scapegoat. I think everyone is looking for sometimes in different clubs. He already had it, like, you know, I mean. Why Mesut? I don't know. It's probably because... I mean, from players like Mesut, I think it's always expected also a different dimension of creativity. And if the team is working badly, Mesut is not like uh, work well, you understand? It's like a team. It's like in the end, it's 11 players, you know? I mean, it's a team, you know? They, you win together, you lose together. It's simple. There is no, no one is singled out like for... Otherwise, you're not a team, you know? And, and I think... I think it's a it's a game of the media as well, you know. The media is unfortunately so powerful nowadays, and the and there's so much bad media in Germany, like in other countries, like like too, you know, like, and and they're very powerful, you know, unf- unfortunately, and they're not controlled anymore. If you try to control a little bit the media, you say you're not anymore democratic, you know. But what can the media do? People see it's not democratic either, right? So, where's the border, you know? So. In the end, the media and everything else played it big time, you know, and they use that. And I mean, media can bring countries to war. Yeah? They create a picture and putting a terrorist together with another leader of a country. They say they work together. So we need to invade another country. So let's go to Iraq. So very simple, right? So you can, the media is so powerful and by influencing people. And I mean, when Mesut retired from the national team, he explained it, right? So the, I mean, imagine he wasn't allowed to go to school anymore. The school where he went and helped for years and the school where he was supposed to go, right, to open like a ceremony. He was helping immigrant kids in a project. The school said, the school, the school director said, Mezu can't come here. And then I was on the phone with her. She, I said, why can't you come? 
yeah, you know, because of the circumstances and he met the President Erdogan and the media and, uh, and the right wing in the city is growing. She said to me, the right wing in the city is growing. And I said, welcome to the Third Reich then, yeah? So welcome to the Hitler Time Award. What are you telling me? Like, are you silly or what? I said, I will tell it to the media what you just said to me. She was so scared. She said, no, you can't say that. And I said, oh yeah, I'll, I will say what you said to me. Don't worry about that. If you can't stick to that, what you say. She said she was scared about the media and the right wing. That mm. Mesut, if he visits his own school, like he paid for it, he did it. And then I have to explain Mesut that he's not welcome in his hometown school. And I said to him, uh, yeah, you know what? The thing with the school, we can't go there anymore. He said, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, he's, he wanted to know why. And then I explained them. And then I think that was the that was like after the mayor of a city called him a goat fucker, after the ch uh, chief of the theater in Munich called him fuck off, go back to Anatolia where you belong to, after so many abuse on emails, phones, the family got in Germany. And there's so many things happened no one knows, even some things we can't talk. After all, this came on top. And there was no protection within the national team that someone comes out and said, hey, wait a minute, you can't call our player like this or whatever. He is one of us. No one. That's, that's also fact. And unfortunately, there was a president at the German Football Federation at that time. He should be never in football. That was a shame for Germany that he was there on that time. I think that was also big trouble. He's not from football. He is politician. He's more right wing. He had these bad comments in parliament before. Why do you bring this guy on top of football in Germany, which is a diverse country, which multiculturalism, you know, and you bring such a guy there just to create problem. You know, it was a huge mistake of the German society. And then in the end, he had to go because of a watch thing or something he got as a president. I mean, yeah, watch thing, you know, he had to leave in the end, you know, so he was yeah. bad. And uh, and to put that just into a little bit of context, just to back up, because not not everybody knows, you know, kind of the sequence of events, right? Yeah. It was in May when there was the instance with Mesut, with Gundogan, with Tosun, yeah, and the photo, and then the other instance was in in July when Mesut announced his retirement. So just put that into context, so that we. So it everything started with the picture of it, the President Erdogan in London. So there was actually uh, an organization who was helping to give. Turkish students all over the world, like a scholar, to go to America to study. And Mesut's helping these kids as well, right? And this organization, this London or this England organization, which is a part of that all organization, which helps Turkish students to go and educate, they invited Mesut to this event. And at that time, we didn't even know the president will come, right? It was an invitation to come in London. There was like dinner and stuff, uh, students, organization, whatever. And I said to Mesut, Mesut, look, they're here in London. They want to do something like that. We can go there. Yeah, so that's fine, you know. And uh, I think one week before we were supposed to go there, they said the President Erdogan is coming to London and he will attend that event as well, right? So, okay, so we were already supposed to go there anyways and the President goes there as well. So you have to think, obviously, if you're in an event where the Turkish President is and where he asks to see you like one week before where you will also go there right of course you was you can't say no you know what you can't be we, we can't see each other there because it's bad for the media or what i mean it's like you you meet a president out of respect either you like him or not politically everyone has his own political views and discussion we don't talk that it's methods like he knows the president and met him in madrid before he met him in turkey before he met him probably seven times six times before and it was never a problem for the German society. It was always in the papers. But the German perception towards Erdogan changed with the media and the country, Turkey and Germany wasn't anymore that good with each other. So that means, so the Germans are saying, 
Three years earlier, Mesut, where we had good relations with Erdogan, you were allowed to have a picture with him. But today, we don't really like him anymore. So you, sh you should be careful and have and have a picture with this guy as well. So that's kind of... And, but they forgot, we have also the Turkish root, right? So we have family in Turkey. We have from this country. And, uh, and the only thing they talked was about football. And the best thing, one of the best things the president said, it's very understandable that they play for Germany because uh, they're born there, they're raised there. So that's normal. So be good there. Don't forget your roots. Don't assimilate yourselves in the end, but don't forget your roots. That's simple, right? Integrate yourself, but don't, you don't have to assimilate yourself. That's not the politics, you know? And uh, that's, that's all, right? I was there and others were there and other football players were there, other sports, but only like, you know, ours get a huge backlash why they may meet this dictator, like these two minutes there, giving him a jersey and saying, out of respect, the president. But one thing is important, you know, Germans don't have that. They don't have this, or the, a lot of Europeans, they don't know this kind of respect towards the, the top of a country. We, we're coming from this culture, from the system. You show respect. You don't have to love someone. You don't have to, you know, but you show a certain kind of respect to everyone, right? And then you go. So they, they don't know that. They don't have that, yeah? So, and when, 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 when Mesut did this, it was huge problem. Like, it was like, you've seen it all over the media, right? And I was asking, like, why didn't you make this two years ago a problem? When he was meeting him in Turkey, you had no problem with that. And the pictures were out. So, and, but as I said, it's known as politics. It doesn't go into their main transatlantic politics view. Now he's a dictator, like, uh, for them. In the, before he was a friend, like Saddam and everyone. So they change, you know. Do you know how politics is? They are today friends to more of enemies. So however they see, and we have to accept their views of the media and the guys above the media who control the media. Like, there are five, six families who are running the media. I mean, they're, they're not journalists. Like, people from Bild and stuff in Germany, they're not in my eyes journalists. Like, they're like puppets, like, of other people. They have to write what they say. They're propaganda people. They don't do, like, journalism, right? So in that sense, it doesn't really interest it as much what they say and write, you know, they can do whatever they want, you know, like it's propaganda in the end. So, so yeah, that's, that was the situation. And then obviously all this time until the German national team plays, the whole, the pressure was, he needs to say, sorry, he did a mistake. <laughs> He's like, you know, he says, I didn't do a mistake. Like I did the same thing I did like years ago. I'm not going out and say, no, I'm sorry that I meet him. Like, and I did a mistake. That was the goal they were working towards the media, the, you know, the government people, everything like within the federation, it was like, that was the expected thing, you know, to say, I'm sorry. Until after the World Cup, it was all expected. He needs to go out and say, I made a mistake. I met this guy, right? And in the end, he said, he went out, you know what? I didn't make a mistake. I leave you guys. So kind of, I'm going out of the national team. I'm not, I don't belong here anymore. Like it was for him. Like he felt like he doesn't belong it anymore there. It was too much, like, I think. And especially the thing with the school came on top. It was, I think, the last thing when he realized, if I'm not even welcome in my hometown, in my own school, I don't want to wear that jersey anymore. That's done for me. So if, if they, like, you know, that was the, and if, if, even if I don't get protected within the national team, and if I got even attacked by the president of the national team, uh, of the German football federation, that was kind of the time when things changed. And that was the moment with his now that became the famous words, which is, you know, I'm German when we win, but an immigrant when we lose. Yeah. And when he, when he said that, so the, the, again, the media was saying, don't let us tell from Mesut Ozil that we are racist or that we have racism. Don't let us tell we have racism, right? And then everyone was coming out and telling their story what's going on. 
all over Germany. I mean, all over Germany. The biggest races are probably in Dortmund, living in a, within the West society, not in the East. People don't know that. Like, huge. It's institutional, right? Racism all over the place. Germans don't want to face it. They don't want to talk about it. Silence is their gold, you know? Probably silence, the third generation, like above me, they, they faced this world uh, war time. They, 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 most of them died in silence. They don't want to even talk. I had like very old women living there. She never talked. They said, well, she can't talk about that time, what happened in the Second World War. People went in silence, you know, they're silent, silence. And if these things come up with racism, they got really offended again, quite. So we're not, it's not about being a Nazi also, right? No one is talking about that. It's about being like treating people equally in institutions. Yeah, it's the institutional racism that's the issue. And and it's in Germany, it's in France, it's in Sweden. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the US. And, and, and I remember you and I, we had this conversation when we saw each other in London as well, where... I don't know if it's gotten worse in the past few years or that it's more visible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more visible now. It's more out. People are going out and demonstrating in Germany, racist. They they, they just call themselves a different party, you know, like like uh, like in the past it happened, you know. It's uh, I mean, the uh, I mean, we can say, you know, the enemy is the Muslim, you know, the the, is, the Islamic terrorists or whatever, you know, which they created like suddenly after 9-11, there was a new enemy. The communist was gone. So the communism fell over. We don't have to scare people anymore about the Russians. Now we scare people about terrorists and, and the Muslim Islamic terrorists uh, was born, right? Created and born. They were there all over the world. And this is the new enemy like in Europe. And unfortunately, this brought also racism. If you have it all over media, pictures of women, you know, with, you know, this is Islam is coming to Europe. You see like big magazines making the first page, Islam, terror, 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 Islam, terror. If you put Islam and terror all the time together, people got scared. Yeah, People are scared of Islam. Like people are like, imagine of that religion. People are scared. Can you believe that? Like people are literally when they hear Islam, it's something negative. And this is something created institutional within the media within the guys who's running the business behind the media it's 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 a thing you know they need it for for whatever they do outside all over the world but the new enemy is the muslims the islamic terrorists you know like and i mean uh, when these things happen we have to uh, talk about that and defend or literally they say look your guys did that i said what do i have to do with these guys over there in this country you know like it's like literally it's my fault like you know being a muslim it's a disadvantage. It wasn't before, but now for people, it's not easy anymore being a Muslim and being in Europe. It's dangerous, right? You're automatically already a potential bad guy. You start minus one in life. Welcome to the world. That's reality because that's what they created over years and years. I remember 2001. Imagine like when these things happened, there was a policeman coming to university in Osnabrück and was giving, a, giving us a lesson about criminalistic the statistics and criminal statistics. And he was saying, probably in this one hour talk, 50 times Islamic terrorism. 50 times. So that the students get it into their minds, you know. And I say, and I said to them, why do you put these let uh, these two words together in, uh, intentionally? What, what's your goal, I said. Why do you here today, you know? So why don't you talk about the statistics? Why do you put these words together? Who told you to do that? Like, there is no Islamic terror. There's terrorism. There is no terrorism coming out of a religion made from this religion there is nothing like there is no christian terrorism jewish terror you understand you can make it sound like that to scare but i mean this is the reality unfortunately right now if you go to europe it's all over the place 
If you're Muslim, you're a potential terrorist or potential bad guy, whatever. Yeah, media's influence is obviously massive, perhaps even more so today than ever before. And to a large extent, people don't take the time to or don't even know how to look a layer deeper and verify the facts. We just see the headlines and take it for face value. I find it interesting as well, the example you used with policemen, you'd think that an educator, which he was in this case, just like any good journalist, should just stick to the facts, introduce it to us, you know, whatever happened, just tell us, here's what happened without introducing, you know, their biased opinion around it. Um, this is a topic, obviously, you and I, we, we both feel ver very strongly about it. And I know we can go on forever, but to stay on course, um, you mentioned earlier, you received so many requests around Mesut. What's the most challenging part of that work with him? Media work. Why is Mesut not playing? Like, I go like 20, 30 times, like people ask me, like, why is he, is he, is he going? Is he not playing? What's happening? It's like, <laughs> uh, media, me to work with the media is the most difficult thing for me, my friend. Is like, why is it like that? It's an obvious question, right? I give you one example, like, which is a case study actually for my students. So Mesut and Adidas running, both running out the contract. But you have seen maybe the headlines. Adidas is dumping Ozil. That yeah, was a headline exactly. in the Daily exactly. Mail here. And, uh, and, and, but the journey starts in, in Germany at Bild, yeah, Axel Springer. So Bild, yeah. they don't like Mesut since 2018, since he said Germans, there's a racism problem in Germany. When he said that, it was like, who are you telling us we are racist? Like, you know, like, don't let us, don't let, tell us from someone like Ozil that we are racist or we have racists here, which is like, a, everyone knows there is, but it's, it's bad for the reputation if someone from that high ranking says that, right? That hits them so hard. The media over there is totally against their agenda. So since then, they try to do bad thing for his image every day. Whenever they find something, he's the headline there on Build. It's the most read newspaper. On particular, this thing with Adidas, they contact me, they write me. I don't even answer them. Never like, I don't, for me, they're not journalists. They're like propaganda people. There's a difference between journalism and propaganda paper who creates headlines, right? So. So they write me and says, Erkut, uh, you know, we need to find out about this Adidas contract. You know, uh, can you please let us know? We want to run a story. I don't even answer. Same Adidas, don't answer. I talk to the Adidas guys. They don't, they, they, they say they don't talk about contracts. But they headline, they created Adidas dumped Ozil. Like Adidas, you know, fucked off Ozil because he's lazy, because of Erdogan, because they created the whole story. And what happens? The story starts in Germany and all the papers in England takes it exactly like that without asking me or asking someone. So the news is out, the damage is done, and then it spreads then. England goes to America, goes to Australia. The whole world sees the image, Adidas dumped Ozil, kicked them away, or you know, or they didn't want to renew a contract with him, or whatever, all negative. So then I came out, I talked to ESPN and said, look, this contract is running out. We want our own brand, they know that, we know it, all is good, right? But the damage is done. The first impression they put out, this is the media. How will you work against them? You understand? What will you do? You have no chance. The media, media controls governments. Like if they want to bring down the government, the big guys behind it, they do it. They make some news and then the, pop, the population will against it and suddenly it's gone. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Mesut is calling. I just take it. Yeah. No worries. Hello. Mesut, do you, Mesut? 
Ja, alles gut? There are so many areas to cover and we haven't even gotten into all the different initiatives that you, the agency and Mesut are involved in. We'll likely have to leave that for part two. But for now, can you lay out and take me through how the agency is structured as it is unique and very much related to how you approach most things? I think that's an important point because probably five and a half, six years ago, I changed my fully approach of running, uh, being a football agent. Until then, it was a one-man show. I was representing some high-profile players like Mesut. I was doing some intermediary work. I was brokering deals. I was making good money. I was fine. Like I was not not about money issue. Like I was successful for myself as a person. But I, but I was always a teacher, you know. And I always wanted to teach people. And I was lecturing at university. But I said, look, I need to first lecture my own people who work with me. I need to teach them to become an agent because I had always I was facing the problem working with other agents because. Uh, Doing things together was so difficult for me and uh, I knew I have to teach them. So the first one I started five and a half years ago, Jack, he's now my right hand in, in England. So Jack was the first one which I took and he was a student at Leeds at that time. He hasn't even finished university. He started working for me as like an intern and then, then I sent him two years to law school. He finished, he says, okay, can I start this? So no, my friend, you go two years to law school. If you want to be a good agent, you go to law school as well and then you work with me. So... Now he's a fantastic agent. He just signed last week a player from Norwich on top, an 18-year-old boy. So he's really, he's really going there. And he's my right hand. He looks after England, Scotland, Ireland, and France. That's his role in the group. But I did the same approach with my guy in Turkey. I brought him from Turkey. He is a young lawyer. I made him an agent. I sent him back to Turkey. He's now in Istanbul. He looks after the Turkish market. Fantastic young agent. Same approach in the Middle East. A guy from Jordan, Sami, came over to London. I taught him being an agent, sent him back. Same with Thomas from Austria. He's working in the German-speaking market. So I uh, brought him to London. So all the same structure. We are now seven, right? With Cristobal, you know, he came from Chile. Cristobal is now moving to Madrid, right? So he will look, take care of Madrid, uh, sorry, of Spain, Portugal, and South America in future. So he will create a bridge. And this is how I grow the group. Now Mitsu in Japan, I will teach to be like the family football Japan. But I have the concept of building them. I bring them all in for short, like the, the way I do it, a short-term intern. So I have interns all the time, throughout the whole year. It never ends like, and I give so many a chance to come. I give them usually two to four weeks to see how they are. If I have a good feeling, I call them for long-term in summer, three months, right? So they do a long-term. And if I see then again, okay, he is really good. Then I said, okay, let's do a deal. Like, I like them. I mean, now I have one of them, for example. So these ones I explained to you, they are established ones. Christopher, you know them, some of them. But they're a tier below. They're now in this education process. And some of them will break through and come into my system, into the family football. There's one guy, for example, he's from New York. He's doing his master's in Copenhagen business school. Very good business school. He's a Harvard graduate. He went to the United Nations school. He speaks eight languages. Fantastic, but hardworking kid. So he approached me when I was teaching at Copenhagen a guest lecture. Again, education opens the door, right? Yep. So he's not the first year, but he's learning now. And he can break through and become a representative within my team, a family of football. He could be like in America. He most likely go back to US or even in Scandinavia. So one of them. What's the key attribute you look for in them? 
when you get that feeling that somebody might have the potential? Yeah. So so first, what I do this short term intern, I check like I give them tasks. I give them like, hey, I need to do some research about that dude. I give them also sometimes just before six o'clock in the evening. It says, oh, you know what? I need this. Can you do it? 10 minutes before they go. And I'm checking like if they do it overnight, if they get if they say, wow, that's so important. I do it and come back or if they just leave it for three days. So really, I, I test them and then I ask questions. I, you know, I'm trying to see how passionate they are. I'm trying to get out what they want. I'm the, one of the most important things. Do they have vision? If they don't have vision, I just get lost. Like if they're like if they have the vision of, yeah, you know, just if I have a good salary or if I have a fine life, like I just want to, you know, secure uh, like just, I want someone who comes and make me better. I want something who comes and give me something on top and says, Erica, you know what? Why don't we think of shoot doing this? Have you ever thought of that? Could we imagine to build up? That's like, wow, this is like this. This is what I want. I want kids coming and creating literally. So after the short term, I call them for one year for the masters. Usually they're probably then between 20, 23, 24. And I say, OK, let's do a deal. I, I, I pay you masters. I pay you expenses for your masters. What is it? 20,000. The rest you have to pay yourself. But you have to work for me. One year. Seven days a week. If I need you on Saturday, you have to work. Sunday, you don't. You can't say no. Like seven days, you're in the office. You go into your university, do the lectures, and come back. Usually they do it late in the evening, the master in sports. Must be sports related. Mm -hmm. At Birkbeck or whatever, I put them then there into the universities. I, I finance it and I overview them. Then uh, the, his thesis and everything. I know when they have lessons. I know the professors at the university. So I'm there. So they're in the mornings coming to the office at nine till five. Then they go to university between six and ten. That's their day usually, right? And uh, at the weekends, they go watch a game. And after one year, I, I know like if they're good enough to be employed. Just employed, not to become a partner. So then, then I employ them and say, if, if I like them, I say, look, some of them I didn't. There was a guy from Spain. He came for, you know, masters. He thought he's already the biggest agent in the world. I say, you go, my friend. Mm -hmm. And then they, they, they got employed by me between one and three years. It depends how long they develop. And then I send them to the countries and make them partners. They're not employees anymore. They share the risk with me. They need to feel it like they say, I invest into it. Yes. The first one, two years. I say, look, now you go to... Cristobal goes to Spain now, right? We create a company. You own this company with me. You're a shareholder. Your shares will grow every year, right? This is the money I put in, yes. But you better move. You better do something. If not, if there's no progress and within two years, we can shut down the business. I put them under real pressure that they feel they're not employees. Because if you give my team, and this is, this is my mentality, no one is an employee. Employee... The, someone of thinking like I'm, I have a job where I go and get my money every month, he will not improve me and my business. There must be someone who knows I own that business with Urquhart and I can own more in future. And I can want more bonus when I do more deals and bring more players. Right? I can lead. One of the young ones will be the leader of the group. All of them are fighting now who will be lead the group. Yeah. Yeah, and all of them want to show me, I want to be the leader. I want to be the leader. I want to be the leader. So it's very good. So this is the concept, four or five steps. They have to go through it. And I build it myself, like, because I'm an educator. I want to see them. That's the, that's the model I created. And, uh, and, and they all work with each other. And I think one of the most important thing is the agent in Turkey, if he does a deal in Germany, he has to work with the German agent together. 
Even gotcha. if he doesn't put them in touch with them and does a deal, he has to share the commission. I, I have a constitution written by all of us together. So everyone knows exactly, oh, it's Jack from England brings a player to Spain where Cristobal is and he's going to Sevilla and does it by himself. It's impossible. Jack gets more of the shares because he brings the players. Still, Cristobal gets a part of the commission because he's then the guy who needs to take care afterwards of the player in Spain. So team. Everyone is network each other. No one works for himself. Everyone works for the team. So that's what we're building up. And hopefully we'll get more people from other regions, from other countries, so I can teach them and bring them into and make it more powerful. And we are Very unique, I think, in the business. I think there's no agency I've seen. They build it something like that so far. I've never seen like, and because uh, I've seen big agencies from inside and I know some other agencies, smaller ones, they don't have that model like. And I think this model is... Uh, so far, I think the best model you can build. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I've seen it across in other industries or other businesses necessarily either. And as I said earlier, there's so much more that we can dive much deeper into as it relates to the business and all the different initiatives that you guys are involved in. But for now, let's start wrapping it. Um, I just want to shoot a set of kind of random questions, hopefully some that you haven't gotten before. Perfect. Sounds great. What is something true that almost nobody agrees with you on? Wow. That's an amazing question. Wow. It's a very difficult one. I mean, the concept of sharing much, like in my business, especially, I hear it all the time. Why do you teach other people? Why do you tell them like the knowledge? Why do you make them better? Why do you bring them into business? And I believe by making them better, I'm getting better and I'm growing myself and it helps me. But they say, the all of them say the opposite. They want to keep it for themselves and they don't want to share this knowledge with people. And I say, by sharing, actually, I grow and I'm not getting smaller. Like I'm just getting like good people and uh, this helps me to grow. It's like one thing, I, especially I can say it for the football business, I realized. If you could only work, let's assume, if you could only work for two hours per week on your business, yeah, what would you do? I think I would spend one hour in giving back projects, like half of it, which I'd always do, like 10 minutes on Big Shoe project, 10 minutes on Cancer Kids project, 10 minutes on food projects, 10 minutes on other things. Like I would divide half of the time into giving back projects and half of the time, like 25% like of the 100, I would invested time into my existing business and 25 into risky new business. What's the best investment you've made? Into myself, in the, in the education. So I give you an example. When I was, I really needed money. Like I was in Turkey and I was struggling. And, uh, and, uh, but I never felt uh, short about investing back into education because I learned whatever I invest, I invest in my life into myself. No one can take from me. No one. So you can lose money. Money comes and goes. Other things, friends comes and goes. Everything. But the investment into yourself, the way you become better, it could be learning a language, anything. It makes you more like competitive. It makes you better. It gives you more confidence. It, uh, it makes you just in everything a, a better human being as well. And I think that was one thing I did. And I remember like I did my first agent seminar course, first ever. And it was like over 10 years ago in Istanbul. I rented like an office room 
And I did it actually because I needed money because I couldn't survive. I was a student. I just did like finish my law school in Germany. I was doing a master's. I was doing consultancy for German companies. But the main thing was still I need to do a doctor. You know, I need to do some research. I need to do good research. My parents wanted enough money to support me on that side. So I said, okay, I need to make money. How can I make money? So I made, I made money from a seminar over the weekend. So and Saturday, Sunday, Sunday night, I went back home. I went in the internet and booked my flight to London. And I came two weeks to the Oxford University, to, to the library, to do research for my PhD in future. So I invested it directly, the money I did, not into going into a holiday, enjoy now 5,000 pounds, whatever. I said, look, I need a flight ticket. I need a place to stay in London. I can go by, uh, by bus every day. And I found a guy in London, someone recommended me in Turkey. He became like my English grandfather. I lived for him yet. For years then from 2013 to 17 so we lived for years now he died now and stuff but that journey at that journey i came i stayed in his top floor for 20 pound a night so <laughs> with breakfast that was like uh, but i invested it into education and into myself because i thought when i get better everything around surrounding me will profit from that my family i can give them most back when I'm successful, when I can do more money, when I can help them with more success, my sister who's not working for me, and I can give more people back who needs it outside, like charities. like So by getting better, actually, even now, my Spanish is actually improving every day. It's actually quite good. I've tested it. And, and my uh, Duolingo is like, you know, I'm just every week I go into a different league. Like I really push it. My wife said, you're crazy. Every night you're sitting there learning Spanish. But I said, it makes me better. And I think it will help me one day, the Spanish knowledge, when I'm maybe in Chile or when I'm in, I don't know, in Argentina and talking to family members of a football player and coming and speaking in their language, that might sign me that player. Or... I'm meeting a club owner in Mexico and in speaking with him, he says, wow, I like you because, you know, you, you learned our culture, you learned our language. Thank you. It's kind of, you know, it helps. And I think uh, that's so important not to stop. I learned not to stop. It's impossible. If, you, if I would stop, I would go backwards. My dream is hopefully one day, imagine I give a lecture in Spanish. Imagine I go to university in Mexico and give a lecture in sports law and sports management, how to do football contracts and transfers. How nice would that be? <laughs> What's your favorite team? My favorite team, Hanover 96. If you cannot say Messi or Ronaldo, who's the best player in the world at the moment? It's a very good question. Let me, let me think about it. Who is the best player in the world at the moment? I'm a Totti fan, you know, but he just stopped playing. <laughs> Huge Totti fan. Like, I mean, like I watched him in Madrid. It was unbelievable. When he was playing for Roma, I mean, who is like, I don't have that, you know, I'm like, it's not Neymar, so no, I don't have that. Like, I mean, you know, for me, I like the number 10s, like Baggio, Totti, like Zidane, Mesut was one of them, like, on his peak, like when he was at Real Madrid, like, you know, the creative play, he's still very creative, but I mean, not in this team, maybe. And, uh, but these kind of creative, like Temp Diabala, I like a lot with his left foot when he does sometimes things at Juve. So I like these creative, crazy players. This is like what I love, like Maradonas, you know, like these players, but they got rare and rare, you know, they just, they just, they don't fit anymore into the system. Like now it's like, you know, quick left, right wings score. Like, it's like, come on, man. Like, where's the beauty like here? You know, you watch a game, a beautiful game. It's going less and less, unfortunately. I agree with that. I mean, I would pay for an entrance ticket just to see a first touch 
by like a Riquelme or Zidane or Riquelme, amazing, right? Oof, How he touched what, what he touched the ball, right? What a player. Same. I have the same feeling. Like artists. Yeah. It's artistry. Yeah. Ronaldinho. Oh. He was an artist. When he had the ball, I swear I love to watch. He was like doing like, you know, the way he touched the ball and the way he kicked the ball. It looked different. And now you don't have it anymore, right? Do you? Now it's like boom, 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 you know, hard, quick, fast, quick, right, left, quick. It's like, come on, man. It's like, it's not nice anymore to watch anymore. Who's the most powerful man in football? Uh, the state of Qatar or the state of Abu Dhabi, I would say. The proudest moment in your career? Uh, footballing side is probably the World Cup in Brazil. Like, that was amazing. Maracana, just to get that, holding that thing there. And lifting it then with your player, that was like a sporting side, something I'll never forget. The one month in Brazil, like Belo Horizonte, probably even the Belo Horizonte win was probably even more than the win against Argentina. I uh, can never forget that 7-1. And the personal side, like uh, to go to the refugee camp in Jordan with Mesut and to visit these kids who are from war, fled the war in Syria and play football with them for hours like Mesut. That was like the most... That was that changed me that day there a lot. You've obviously given a lot of great recommendations throughout our conversation. But if you had to give one recommendation to somebody wanting to follow in your footsteps, what would that be? I think uh, I think what makes me who I am is like protecting the progress, protecting it like every day. Like that that's the most hardest thing. Like I think it is having visions and stuff like that. Yeah, that's important, but being there every day and not giving up even even when others tell you it's impossible even when friends and family say you can't make it even when everything looks like it will not happen to keep protect your progress in working hard every day and giving your time even if you think you don't progress you're progressing because you're protecting your progress by doing it every day the outcome it will take years maybe but you have to go on and you don't surround yourself by negative people always positive people always people who encourage you and just go on like and there's nothing you can't achieve then i think this is very this is the hard thing in it like that you do it every day like literally make it a habit who's a person in the football world that you look up to that you think people should follow and learn from i mean I'm a big fan of Muhammad Ali, you know, why? Because he was, uh, and, I, and, I, and I just had that with the papers. I wrote an article for the iPaper here in London. I don't know if you've seen it, like, and yeah. it's about footballers and being active, activism for footballers, to speaking out about things. Right now you've seen Rashford, Sterling, you know, they both do great things. And I've seen it again when I watched the last dance of Michael Jordan. And I've seen the difference, like, why I like more Muhammad Ali's because he didn't think about selling sneakers. He, th he thought about he'll make a difference and uh, even it's not popular with what he did, like what he said. And he says like in this place, in this world, he, he, stand, he was standing for something that he will be never forgotten. And uh, that's why I, I love him. I took so much from him to see like, do something, change something like, and don't do it because of the money you can make more money like being smart businessman, you, you can be a smart businessman, but you can be still have a standing in life and stand for something. What's the book that has impacted you the most that you think people should read? I think it was, is it here one second? 
I, I read it a couple of times. Wait, I like one book a lot. I mean, there's a lot. I'm a reader anyways, but this one. The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. That was, it's very old now. Oxford Street, London, 59-2012, eight years ago. That was when I was doing seminars and making money and coming to Oxford University and doing my... That was that time when I was doing my PhD. And uh, it was like I, I was missing like at that time, I think only one thing. And, then, and I, I thought I was not thinking big enough in life that I can't achieve it sometimes. I was like maybe scared, scared even to think about it. Like. And by reading it, I said, look, there's nothing really you can't achieve. Like he gave me like a little bit that kind of confidence maybe you needed in that time of career that really then put me like in the different places. Like. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? Make other people better. Yeah, Help other people to get successful. I think this is like what I say. People like they ask me what should I, I say. Make other people successful. Help them to get successful. Don't be jealous. Like really help them, and don't expect a return by doing it. So if you do someone helping, do it because you want to make him successful. Because his success is your success actually. So it's a part of your journey, and don't expect anything in return because the return is coming from somewhere else. Last one. Who do you think I should interview on this podcast? It's a good question. I need to think about it. If it's an athlete or is it uh you know what I f- think first is who has a great story? You should interview people with great stories, with great accomplishment like role models like or people you people who can teach others something. I mean athletes, there are many athletes like Mesut and whatever. There you can do podcasts with them, but is there anybody whose story you really would like to learn? Arsene Wenger the time before he came to Arsenal. He went to Japan and stuff like that and why Japan and why all this kind of philosophy he brought into it. I had good conversations with Arsene always when I was meeting him. I learned a lot from him actually. Very patient guy, very listening guy, very like innovative guy. I liked him a lot. What's the best thing he taught you? Uh, languages. He was so good in languages. I was always jealous about his knowing so many languages. I said that like, I love it. He speaks so many languages. He was speaking German with me. And another guy came in, he was speaking French. Then another guy came, came in in English. Then he was speaking like, I mean, so many like Japanese. And it's just like, and I liked him because people respected him so much. He has an aura. Some people have an aura when they come and go. People show a certain respect. They, they get that over years. And Arsene had that, which I really liked having that kind of aura. Fantastic, Erkut. Perfect. <laughs> I can't thank you enough, man. Oh, you're welcome. I can't thank you. So thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good one and keep in touch. Huh? Sounds good. Enjoy the weekend. Yeah, you too, my friend. All right. Ciao. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes and write a review. It will help tremendously as I try to grow this podcast one listener at a time. Thanks again. The football studio will be back next week. Thanks. Have a good one.